The Art Newspaper Weekly Podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams, where the historic and modern are equally valued. Hello, and welcome to the Art Newspaper Podcast. I'm Ben Luke. This week, we've asked a critic to look at the new museum triennial in New York. What curators have done is essentially opened up space for a number of rabbit holes that you can sort of like go down. None of them leads you to any kind of unifying idea. But first, it's the 100th anniversary of the deaths of two of Austria's greatest modern artists, Gustav Klimt and Egon Schiele. A huge variety of exhibitions and displays are opening this year in Europe and America, including several in Vienna this month. I'm joined by Desiree Descher, the curator of the Royal Academy's exhibition of the artist's drawings, opening later this year. Desiree, I wonder if you can, we can begin by establishing what it is that we're commemorating in 2018. Well, 2018 marks the centenary of both Klimt and Sheila's death. And on this occasion, the Royal Academy of Arts has teamed up with the Albertina Museum in Vienna to um, look upon the fundamental importance of drawing in the relationship between these two most important Austrian artists of the early 20th century. They're of different generations, aren't they? But they are related. They are closely related. And we look at their artistic relationship, their their friendship, really. It's not a relationship of master and pupil, but rather one of mutual appreciation of each other's talent. And yes, of course, uh, Klimt was a generation older, and um, he was very uh, supportive of uh, young artists and Chile in particular. And Chile, when, when he was just starting out, of course, he was so ambitious and he was looking at Klimt, who was the number one artist at the time in Vienna. When you say number one artist, do you mean number one avant-garde artist or was he a, an establishment figure? No, he was, he was an avant-garde artist. He um, was the founder and first president of the Vienna Secession, which was an artistic movement breaking away from the established academic tradition and looking at art in a, in a new way, in a more integral way, and in a more international way. And um, his, his approach, his style was um, very different from what was usually taught at the academy. Uh, he was controversial, but also incredibly successful and he had a huge network of patrons and um, that's how he really became the number one, the, the most celebrated and successful artist at the time. And Sheila, Sheila would have seen his works where? Their first meaningful encounter was in the context of uh, Klimt's 1908 exhibition, the Kunstschau exhibition in Vienna, which Klimt had organised after leaving the secession movement, actually, a few years earlier. And uh, Sheila was um, still at the um, School of Fine Arts at the time, and he wasn't actually allowed to go and see uh, these avant-garde exhibitions. His uh, teacher, who was a very <laughs> strict professor, didn't allow his students, but nevertheless he went, and, and that's where he uh, met Klimt's works, and he was completely mesmerised by them. And... Um, Klimt uh, then invited him to take part in the following year in the Kunstschau. And of course, Sheila picked up on that offer. And um, it goes from there. They were you know, very close and admired each other, shared uh, some of their drawings, exchanged them. Klimt introduced uh, Sheila to, to some of his key patrons and was very supportive. And 
I mean, we have to say that Sheila was a very young man at this stage. He was still a teenager. He was, yeah, he was born in 1890. He was was very young still. And so you can imagine being still in his in his teens, basically, when he left the academy and um, started out on his own. And he still, you know, hadn't gained any maturity. So when he left uh, Vienna to go and live in his mother's hometown, Krumau, in 1910, which was, you know, the really breakthrough time for him, uh, he was, you know, he's still this very adolescent, for the first time, uh, experimenting with uh, depicting the female nude. And you really feel how he projects his own sort of fears and ex- anxieties um, of sexuality into his, his drawings, which, which are absolutely radical at the time. And that's really striking, isn't it? Because he's there, he's not in the capital. He's in a place outside the capital where, I mean, even in Vienna, these works would have been seen as radical, let alone where Sheila was. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was um, drawing the nude at the time, uh, or the, the erotic nude, was, uh, of course, sought after, but it was a taboo. Um, sexuality was a taboo subject at the time. It happened everywhere, but um, officially uh, you wouldn't talk about it. And and, and Sheila moved away to, to Krumau, yeah, to find to find himself in a way, he uh, then moved moved again to uh, to Grumau and didn't get quite on with the local population because he was um, inviting these um, young models and delinquent children to his studio to draw them um, because he couldn't he couldn't afford um, professional models at the time and he actually he really liked being around young people and children. And so what happened is that in 1912, he met this young girl who was the daughter of a local aristocrat who had run away. And she um, asked uh, Sheila if she could stay with him and because she wanted to go to to Vienna to escape and and meet her grandmother and Sheila and his then girlfriend the the model uh, Vali Neutzel, um gave her refuge for a night but in the meantime the uh, girl's father had already called the police and Sheila was basically arrested on the charge of child abduction and seduction and was put in prison in Neulangbach, and uh, he stayed in prison for nearly three weeks. So it was an absolutely life-changing time, and he draws these very uh, mesmerizing draw- uh, series of uh, watercolors at the time, um, commemorating his, his prison experience, which we will also include in the exhibition. So what were the circumstances that saw Sheila being released from prison? The judge dropped the charges of child abduction and seduction because it simply couldn't be proved. But Sheila had to stay for three more days in prison um, because he was found guilty of exposing young children in a studio to these many erotic drawings. And as a a sign uh, for his guilt, the judge um, burnt one of Sheila's... uh, drawings which um, all had been confiscated when he was arrested. One has to say he was he was very 
clueless, uh, um, you know, inviting these young children to to a studio where, of course, it was the walls were full of drawings with erotic scenes on them, and at the time, that was considered indecent and um, impossible. So that was, in the end, the the, the charge, and um, he was released after twenty four days. Right. So. You have a sense in which life and art are very much intertwined in terms of Sheila's output. Yes, life and art are, are very intertwined, and he projects his own experience into his art. His relationship with um, the uh, persons, with the models he um, he draws, and he um, he really stages them in radical poses, and um, always keeps this sort of immediacy, this direct eye contact with them. You really feel his presence in in his depictions, which is, of course, something very different from the usual depiction of the human figure, of the, of the nude figure especially. If you look at Klimt, he is also a master of erotic nudes, but he depicts them in a very different way, more passive and more discreet in a way, more elegant, uh, while Sheila's nudes are just you know, radical and very unsettling. That's the thing, they still have the power to shock today, don't they? And I think one of the reasons that they have the power to shock is that certainly in the UK, we haven't had much of a chance to see them in the flesh, as it were, in our public collections. There's, for instance, there's no works in the Tate there are no works in the British Museum. I think there's one print in the V&A. So in Britain, while these works may be familiar in reproduction, seeing them in the flesh, on the wall, is still something of a, of a, of a sort of shock, a, a sort of visceral shock. Yes, absolutely. And you, you, you really have to see them in the flesh. I mean, there's nothing better than, than seeing the original, which really keeps the aura, the immediacy of the artist's touch and... And drawing, of course, is the medium which is best suited to to really convey the artist's thoughts and processes. And drawings, of course, are very sensitive, very fragile, so they come out very rarely of of their storage. And it's a very rare, exquisite occasion uh, to have this exhibition in London and see those Klimt's and Sheila's works um, from up close. If Sheila is an artist who sort of maintained his radicality, is it fair to say that Klimt has rather drifted the other way in the sense that his images are so familiar, so much reproduced, that in a way the rawness of his work and the sort of experimentation, the avant-garde sense of his work has somehow been lost? No, I don't think that so. Especially in his drawings, you can really feel how he tries to to get to the very essence of the human figure and... his lines, his outlines are just so elegant and beautiful. And what's interesting, he also changes throughout his life and you almost um, feel that looking at the younger Sheila, he, he takes up some inspiration and especially in his later erotic nudes, he becomes more daring and and um, his his lines break more up. And it's it's very fascinating to see actually how... Uh, they influence each other to a, to a certain degree. I suppose that's 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 interesting because Klimt 
in terms of again sort of reproduced images images that that we that are very ubiquitous is best known for those sort of decorative paintings for the works that have a very strong sort of sense of pattern and figures emerging from pattern sort of influenced by byzantine work etc there isn't much awareness of that really beautiful fluency of his drawings here. We see, in a way, his drawing is sometimes hidden in that, with all that decoration, whereas the chance to see the drawings unleashes the, the sort of rawness and that sort of extraordinary talent he had and that amazing line he had, actually. Yeah, absolutely. And, and um, we have uh, drawings for his key projects from the famous Shocking Faculty series, which caused a lot of stir in the public... Uh, to, of course, his uh, most celebrated work, the Beethoven Frieze from 1902. And we have a whole series of really fascinating drawings where he tries to really find the very best, the most essential line for the uh, flowing figure. And uh, he's really trying to capture the essence of of, um, the the female in, in all... The different stages from the young girl to the pregnant woman, the old woman, and he's really capturing the the, the, the humanity of it. Tell me about the artists' reputations at the time of their death. So, I mean, Sheila was very young. He was only 28, or was he even 27 when he died, um, uh, of the Spanish flu. Um, Klimt, obviously, as, as you say, was a much more established artist. So where... Where were they, if you like, in terms of reputation at the the time of their death? Well, uh, Klimt was the most celebrated artist in Vienna still when he, in uh, 1918, when he died. But um, in the previous two years, Schiele had finally gained more public recognition. Up until about 1917, he almost lived from hand to mouth and was on no stable financial footing. I had you know, a small number of patrons, but they weren't very rich. And of course, the prices he asked um, for his works were so much lower than, than Klimt's prices. Klimt um, got 30 times more for his for his paintings than, than Sheila did. And um, so they had, uh, because of very different you know, social financial standing and um, and it was only sort of in towards the end of the century where that uh, Schiele became more recognized. He married in 1915, so that sort of put a break to his more bohemian lifestyle he was um, pursuing before. He married um, Edith Harms, who was from a bourgeois settled family, and that might have also helped him in making him more appealing to 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 the rich Viennese society and he in the end um started to to obtain more commissions for portraits because that's of course where a lot of artists at the time <laughs> made their money and the crowning came to his career came when he was asked in uh, late uh, 1917 to curate the 49th Vienna uh, Secession Exhibition. Um, and when Klimt died in February 1918, Schiele was really recognized as his successor. And the tragedy is that only a few months later, he died um, in the uh, flu epidemic that 
caused so many deaths across Europe and the world. And yeah, that's fascinating, isn't it? Because I think, to a certain extent, we want to believe in the sort of bohemian nature of Sheila, the, the his reputation as a, as a as a figure who lived on the edge, and actually he had begun to be accepted into the establishment just at the moment that he died. That's that's right, but still, all his drawings, even from the last uh, phase, when they became a little bit calmer and perhaps a little bit more sort of established um, in, their, in their sort of calmer outline and they're not so coloured anymore. But um, you have this very rich oeuvre of hundreds of most amazing drawings and watercolours which, which really form his reputation today and they haven't lost any of their appeal and immediacy and and shocking attraction nowadays and that they really summarize who he who he was and what he felt and of course it's 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 speculation to to uh, think about what he would have done because we talk about his mature style but he was only 28 um, but what we can say is that, you know, for generations after him, he has been such a strong influence. And you only have to look at contemporary artists nowadays, like um, Tracy Emin and Jenny Seville, who uh, look at Sheila and are very inspired. And and that is something uh, which Klimt didn't have. He didn't have this strong following, although you know, both artists emerged into the modern age but um it it's it's Sheila whose um whose works are just so timeless in a way it was a feel so so timeless and strong because they are so far removed from the elegant established world and they are just so so cruel and human oh, well that's that's a really interesting point i wonder if the 20th century called less for the kind of art that Klimt was making and much more for a kind of early kind of existentialism, if you like, in, in Sheila's work. Yeah, in a way, I mean, it's 1918 um, is the end of the First World War and then you have Europe um, caught up in you know, poverty and depression and all sorts of changes and you know, revolutions happening and course it's it's a brutal time it's an ugly time and and uh, Sheila's work probably reflects this rupture a lot more than Klimt's elegant lines of course his work is very much about humanity and something really deeply um, essential and I find it also very inspiring because he looks at um, essential themes like love, life and death and that influenced Chile very much as well both, both of them looked at these very strong human allegories Desiree, thank you very much Thank you very much for inviting me Those of us in the UK have to wait a little while to see the show, as Klimt Schieler opens at the Royal Academy on the 4th of November, but there are many Klimt and Schieler exhibitions opening in the coming months. There are too many to list them in full here, but shows open this month at the Leopold Museum and the Kunsthistorisches Museum in Vienna, and at the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston. If you visit our website at theartnewspaper.com, David Darcy has done a comprehensive roundup of exhibitions until the end of the year. 
Now, the new museum in New York has just opened its fourth triennial exhibition. Curated by Gary Carrion Muriari and Francesca Altamura from the museum and Alex Gartenfield, chief curator at the Institute of Contemporary Art in Miami, it's titled Songs for Sabotage and is billed as having a strong political edge. Christian Viveros Fonet is an independent curator and critic currently working on a book about art and politics to be published by David Zwerner Books in October 2018. We asked him to have a look at the show and he joins me on the line. Christian, before we go into the, the triennial itself, I wonder if you might just set the scene for us and tell us where the new museum fits into the ecosystem of the New York art scene. It's actually sort of the first downtown museum, both historically in that it was founded in 1977 by Marcia Tucker um, down, in, down in the Bowery in the Lower East Side. Um, I mean, it was essentially just an office. So it was an idea of a museum. Um, and then it, it, it uh, you know, eventually grew. I remember by the time I showed up in New York, it was on Broadway and Prince Street. Um, and, and then it broke ground on the Bowery at uh, 235 and uh you know it it it, it was the first it, it, rather it is the first sort of like museum construction downtown beating out i guess the 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 whitney downtown uh over in the meat market uh by whatever it was i don't know five six years i don't i don't remember anymore but but that's essentially its definition it, it's as a mission it's sort of devoted to um Newer art, it's not bound to, to, to uh, exhibit American artists necessarily. Um, it tends to like its sort of its youth movements, yeah. um, as, as this triennial sort of demonstrates. Um, uh, in fact, as all the triennials demonstrate. Um, so that, that's more or less it in a, in, a, in a nutshell. Can you sort of plot the geography of the show for us? How many floors in the new museum does it, does it take up? Um, how are the works shown? Are we are they very much shown individually, or are we seeing clusters of the works together? Uh, well, the show is basically on three floors. So, four floor four, three, and two is is where the works at, and they're generally in clusters. Um, there's there's video set among sculptures and paintings. It's not quite as packed out as it used to be. There were 51 artists in the last triennial surround audience in 2015 and 26 in this one so uh, it it doesn't manage to look crowded but it is full now this one's called songs for sabotage and the the implication is that it's a it's a triennial which deals with activism was that the reality when you when you saw the show Yes and no. The text dealt with activism. I think the art rarely did. And that unfortunately happens quite a bit at the, at the New Museum with these triennials in that the curatorial claims tend to outstrip the work that's found. Part of it has to do with, with the way the work is gathered. Um, there's, you know, I think a significant amount of cool hunting that takes place. I don't know how much actual proper gathering can really happen when 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 curators sort of jet off to Mexico City or Bangkok or wherever it is and just sort of announce that they're there and for people to come see them, which is kind of the way the process is described in in a couple of articles that have come out. There was one that came out in the New York Times recently that basically described it more or less that way. The other thing that I think bears considering is you know the notion of of radicality and revolt and even newness with with you know and youth culture <laughs> yeah you know 
uh, honestly, I don't know that we should be looking to, to, to the youth or youth culture for, for solid ideas about politics or about unions these days. I, I, I'm one of those people who happen to think that, that there's nothing more conservative than youth culture. So, and, and I think that cuts across um, uh, you know, cultural manifestations and obviously media, and it, and it really is part of the way sort of art um, uh, unveils itself today. So. That's a really interesting uh, perception. Can you explain how that works in, in practice in terms of the works in the show? You know, I think in terms of the works in the show, well, there's a lot of painting. I, I actually didn't, I, I, and I should have added up the number of painters in the show. There's 26 artists uh, and artist collectives uh, from about 17 different countries. I believe only two are American. Um, so you can already sort of see the geographical and the displacement issues in terms of basically sort of gathering the talent, right? I, I think around seven are, are, are painters. You know, I'm a, I'm a great defender of, of painting, but painting doesn't tend to, to, to promote, um, I, I don't know, radical or, or, uh, or values of sabotage. And that's a word that's used quite a bit in, in the, um, uh, in the text around this particular exhibition. Yeah, obviously it's, it's in the title, but it, it's also used sort of as a, as a, uh, as a, as a, as a sort of pseudo philosophical notion that, that seems to be now in vogue. And, and, and painting is really not the medium to, 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 to go to find that often painting can do lots of sabotaging like moves within its own sort of structure, but it doesn't exactly, uh, you know, managed to, I don't know, to take Silda Morales' uh, great quote, um, insert itself into ideological circuits, you know, or, or propose, you know, new, um, you know, economic systems or, you know, manage to sort of, you know, I don't know, uh, provide activism for folks out in the street or, you know, you, you, you know where I'm going with this. So Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Do you, do you feel then that, there's a certain acceptance of established systems among the artists that are featured in the show. How should I put it? I don't want to blame the artists here too much, you know, frankly, because they're young and many of them are sort of finding their own way. And I want to find things that I'm interested in. And I did find, you know, several things that I was interested in. And that for me is enough in a show like this. But I, I was, as, as I was sort of walking around, I was actually remembering a quote that I read from Marshall McLuhan. From probably around 19, the early 1980s, um, uh, you know, it, and, he, and it basically goes: when you give people too much information, they they sort they uh, resort to pattern recognition. And, and and it and it struck me that that a, a biennial as tribal as this, you know, because I really is sort of I think this is the tribal biennial where what curators have done is essentially open up space for a number of rabbit holes that you can sort of like go down um, with each of the works that's presented. But none of them leads you to any kind of unifying idea either about the kind of work that's being made today in opposition to sort of like the crude realities of, of the moment um, or, or, you know, any kind of, I don't want to even say unifying, but just, just a, a generalized notion of protest um, of sabotage, uh, you know, really sort of of anything. It, 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 it seemed to be, to me, a really confusing show. If, if the curators had just said, here's a bunch of stuff we like and not framed it in this 
political context. Do you think it could have been an enjoyable show? Do, are there, are there, you said that there are some things that you would, you admired in the show. Could it, could it, could it have worked just as a, Hey, here's a bunch of new stuff. Have a look at it. Yeah, but they would have had to dial down the, 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 the sort of radical pretensions, you know, significant one, which I yes. don't think, you know, curatorial practice is particularly in a place like the new museum is particularly keen to do. Um, <laughs> so so let's, let's, let's talk about some of the things that you did like then. Well, let's see. There's, there's a, an artist named, uh, I think this is the name, Janine Ellis, who had very sort of wrote Robert Cole Scotty painting. She could actually paint quite well. Uh, or the paintings were, were, were very good. An artist named Manolis Lemos from Greece who did a video that you could, well, unfortunately, you could, you know, at openings, you, you have a tough time sort of hearing or seeing things. Um, but it, it was basically in the middle of the room. So it's, it's, a hard, it's a hard piece to take on while taking on lots of other pieces. Um, but but it, it, it was essentially of a, a group of people wearing jackets all of which sort of seem to describe a, a horizon line either at, at dawn or at dusk basically running wild through the streets of athens and the the title of it dusk and dawn look just the same riot tourism um idea being that uh you know either either extremes of uh of a revolutionary movement might might look more or less the same and i think that's kind of a fairly deep point to be making um, in a political biennial. Apparently, the mention of Dawn also has to do with uh, a right-wing uh, political movement in Greece. Uh, the other person who I thought did very good work was someone named Claudia Martinez-Garay, who is uh, from Peru, but not even from Lima. She's from a place called Ayacucho, which is somewhat in the wilds. And she somehow got to study over at the Wrights Academy, and she did some really interesting and I thought properly political work. She basically sort of analyzed uh, agitprop and separated out the signs and put them on two opposite walls. And so they're looking at each other. Um, and you're not quite sure what's right wing agitprop and what's left wing agitprop. And, and uh, you know, into the bargain, the work actually looks really good. <laughs> right. So one side looks like, you know, minimal, minimal paintings of some kind of suprematist uh, brand. Um, and then the other side is essentially made up of, you know, the emblem snakes and what have you and fists. And, and uh, in, in any event, um, again, it's, it's one of those uh, pieces in which if you, you know, read into it a bit, you see that the extremes meet, you know, the extremes in this case being whatever, the alt-right, the alt-left or the left and the, the, extreme, the extreme right and the extreme left. But those were the ones that really sort of stood out for me. What's interesting about what you're saying about that last work is that it seems to me to be proposing something that art can do that other disciplines maybe can't in terms of the way it grapples with ideas and asks questions. Yeah, I think that's right. You know, and it's also a bit of analysis, to, to, to be honest with you. I mean, you know, there's there's a there's a great element of semiotic analysis there. You know, she's basically um, dissecting these signs and, you know, providing us an alternative way to, to, to look at them. It, it, it was one of those pieces that where, where the wall text actually informed enough. Um, but if you looked away from the wall text, the works also sort of functioned. Do you know what I mean? They weren't entirely dependent on this, on, on the, uh, on the screed that was sort of like supplied for you to be able to make sense of the stuff, which unfortunately, by the way, was one of those, 
was one of those uh, characteristic um, uh, parts of the exhibition that that was sort of difficult to take. Each each piece had a very very long uh, you know piece of text attached to it with really low lighting, which just which didn't help. Right. I mean, this is one of the things that, that is a perennial question about biennials and triennials. And it's difficult to, without talking to lots of the artists, to gather just how much they've bought into that process. Because more and more, you know, there's the, you know, the, the much fabled um, tyranny of the curator, which has been now a many decades long question. Um, but, but there is that sense in which, you know, uh, artists have spoken about being straight jacketed by themes, their work not being able to breathe within them. Did you, you know, were you able to ignore some of that text and, 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 and simply get on with seeing the exhibition or did you feel that you, you just simply could not avoid it and therefore it it did straitjacket these artists work you know these these things are not really truly done by committee but these triennials and biennials they're really done by the institution and more specifically by the curators that are charged with putting the shows together um so you know it, it may or may not straitjacket the artists um but it, it's it's really up to you know the artist to make work that that somehow or other breaks out of that potential straitjacket. Um, I think the cases I mentioned uh, uh, do, and, and you know part of the charge of the curators is to not straitjacket, not impose so much text, so much um, extraneous analysis. The the problem isn't analysis. The problem is is where the stuff um, doesn't doesn't fit. You know doesn't really sort of properly, you know, abide the work. Um, and, it, and in the case of, of this show, what was repetitive was the, how should I put it, the curatorial grading curve. Um, you know, everything was PR'd and sold at a level of radicality that the work 90% of the time did not meet. And that so that again returns to this idea that in a way almost too much is is being asked of artists who are emerging to make radical statements. We know, after all, that very recently a lot of the most radical and most interesting art is being made by artists who are much, much further along in their careers. Absolutely. I mean, you know, again, I, I don't want to repeat myself, but, you know, one of the things about youth culture as of, you know, probably the 1980s, if not before, is that it is conservative. It's about commercialism, largely. It's the wrong group to be looking at for like radical ideas we live in a very complicated historical moment you know and i'm it's not that you know youth and youth culture has nothing to say about the the moment in which we're living you know but you know it it may not be the most expert demographic (laughs) um uh and and i'm totally with you that that i think this is part of what you're saying if not this is definitely what i'm saying you know that that Annuals, biennials, triennials, quinquennials, whatever they happen to be, you know, you know, need everybody's artistic and curatorial energies to to actually sort of tackle difficult historical moments like this. And I and I'm absolutely 100% for art speaking to its own time, um, but if it does so, it had better uh, um, really, you know, lasso all the resources. That can possibly sort of like muster and and you know and and take it on properly and and that brings us back to the start of this conversation which is how 
the new museum triennial then compares to its inevitable comparison point, which is the Whitney Biennial. And the Whitney Biennial can be fleeter for it can do those things that we're saying in the sense that, yes, it might be restricted to American artists, but it, it can call on artists from multiple generations who just happen to be making the most compelling work at that moment. Look, you're absolutely right. I mean, you know, it, it, it used to be that, that the Whitney Biennial was also sort of like particularly specifically or, or, or overwhelmingly interested in sort of like the youth quake, and then they got rid of that, and 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 they and they were they were quite smart to get rid of that. And the last Whitney Biennial, this is was actually quite good. It was very uh, conflicted. It made a lot of you know, uh, it produced a lot of noise. Um, uh, there were a lot of controversies, some uh, dumber than others, but but it 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 basically left a high bar for this triennial to. Uh, to meet, and uh, and unfortunately, you know, I I don't think it I don't think it comes close to to being anywhere um, as good as as the last uh, Whitney show. Christian, thank you so much. Thank you. The New Museum Triennial Songs for Sabotage is at the New Museum in New York until twenty seventh of May. And that's it for this week. If you like the podcast, please subscribe, and if you have a moment, post a rating or review. You can let us know what you think on Twitter or Facebook at The Art Newspaper and follow us on Instagram at theartnewspaper.official. Until next week. <laughs>